following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, welcome this evening. I'm actually not going to need this, so I'm going to just set that aside and welcome you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 this evening. Matthew and the ninth chapter. Hope that you're following along as we're reading in the segment of Scripture. We, uh, because of the fleeting nature of time, we're going to begin straight away here. The Lord Jesus is uh, coming off of finishing the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. He begins to, uh, well, begins again anew to authenticate his ministry to the people of the nation of Israel. And he does that by cleansing a leper, healing a servant of a centurion, healing Peter's mother-in-law, healing a whole host of people that came to the house where he was one evening, talking about the cost of discipleship, uh, causing the wind and the waves to obey him, and then uh, healing some demon-possessed men by casting out the demons into a herd of swine. We open then chapter 9 with Jesus declaring a man to be forgiven of his sin. What a blessing to be able to do that. I I hope you've had that privilege sometime to be able to say to somebody when they believe in the gospel, look, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You are cleansed before God. But this is a special case of that because the very God of very gods was there standing in human form over this man lying on a bed, paralyzed, and he said, when he saw the faith of these ones, he said, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. The very deepest need that he had was taken care of, and then the Lord also took care of his physical need as a demonstration of his divine power. And uh, over the objection of the scribes and Pharisees, he uh, healed the man and demonstrated that he did indeed have the power to forgive sins. We see in uh, then the next segment of the chapter, starting in verse number nine, that Jesus called Matthew, one of my favorite little passages of scripture, (laughs) a uh, a young tax collecting Matthew here, sitting at the tax office, a young man perhaps, or middle aged, who was doing this work for Rome. And the point of the passage really in this segment is not to say, to focus on the calling of Matthew, but on the work of the Lord Jesus with people who are sinners like tax collectors, other tax collectors like Matthew and uh, harlots and uh, sinners of all sorts. And the people again criticized Jesus, the Pharisees did, because he was eating with sinful people, something that they they thought they they were too good for. They would become unclean if they were to do that. Um, But that was not an issue for Christ. And in fact, the text says very clearly, those who uh, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And furthermore, Jesus, the master teacher of mercy and compassion, did not desire, first of all, sacrifice or some kind of external uh, cleanliness or ceremonial religion. That didn't help anybody when you're just focused on that. And that whole system must have been so 
distressing to the Lord when he saw it because it was twisted out of shape from what it was meant to be in the beginning when God set certain protective fences, if you will, around the tabernacle and then around the temple and around the the Levites who were serving and, and teaching people about the uncleanness of sin. And it was all just twisted and, and morphed into something that it was never intended to be. And he has to deal with this time and time and time again. Jesus knew their thoughts. That's omniscience. He knew their thoughts were evil. That's a moral judgment that he made upon them. Um, and uh, in, in, this, in the section uh, earlier when they were, he was forgiving sin. And uh, here... Um, you know, he knows their thoughts again. And, uh, he's, and of course, he didn't, he didn't have to know them. He heard them in this particular case and, um, and just rebuked them. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't know the compassion of God. They didn't know like what we're going to get to again at the end of chapter 9 about the Lord's compassion for people who were weary and scattered and needing a shepherd. So Jesus came to help sinners. Uh, that is the second section of the text. And then the third section starts in 14 through 17. We began to touch on this last time, but let me just read this again. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So Jesus here deals with a notable difference in external religion between his disciples and that of the Pharisees and of John the Baptist. The latter groups often had fasting rituals that they did, but it was not part of the public expression of worship of the disciples of Christ. And so uh, the disciples uh, raise this obvious kind of question, the disciples of John, um, you know, we're following John, we're fasting. Uh, people are following the Pharisees' teaching, and they're fasting. You're following Jesus' teaching, and you're not fasting. Why? What's different about your leader? Why don't you do this? Um, you know, we remembered last time that Jesus taught his disciples to fast how? Privately. You wouldn't see them fasting. <laughs> so the question is kind of misplaced but we'll grant a place for the question and just let it stand as it is. Um, But the Lord teaches them that it would be about the same thing to fast when Jesus is with them as to fast at a wedding feast. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't make any sense. It is a time of rejoicing, of feasting, of enjoying, of gladness, of celebration, not of fasting. This is a wedding reception dinner or a rehearsal dinner. Um, you know, the, the whole sequence of events surrounding a wedding and all the joy, the families getting together and, and, and just an enjoyable time. But when the Lord is taken away, then there'll be plenty of time for grief. 
And fasting is often associated with grief, with mourning. Uh, fasting is associated with religious devotion, with, you know, I, I have sin in my life and I need to cl- be cleansed of that. I need to devote myself, excuse me, to the Lord. I need to, to look to Him. And so uh, that was, that was there would be plenty of time for that. But now the Lord says was not the time. There would be uh, also fasting in times of calamity. And I'm not talking about necessary fasting like, you know, the calamity is so bad that the food runs out of the shelves at the store and you have to fast. This is more voluntary fasting is what we're talking about. And, um, of course, then the Lord would return to them, right, just a few days later. So then it would be time to uh, stop the fast and to enjoy once again uh, the joy, the gladness, the celebration of the resurrection. Now, I have not taught much on fasting in uh, my ministry here because it is not a New Testament emphasis. It's not a ritual or an ordinance of the church. It's a personal expression of piety done on your own in a safe way, of course, to express extra devotion to God any time that you desire. There's no command to fast in the New Testament. There are a couple of passages that may assume that Fasting will be done by God's people, but there is no command or direction about that. Um, you know, we'll fast uh, re- or restrain ourselves from eating for purposes of distress or mourning over sin or grief of a lost loved one. But since the Lord Jesus is resurrected, we live in an era of joy, don't we? We don't have to be glum and ho-hum, as I call it. We need to be happy and joyful. Jesus is alive, and we ought to have that on our faces. I'm not saying we don't have bad times and we don't have difficult things, but you can, as the Scripture says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Be joyful at all times, even in spite of and in the midst of the trials that we face. You know, Jesus is alive, we have the hope of his return, our sins are forgiven, we can live with rejoicing and confidence instead of sadness and gloom. So uh, fasting is not automatically called for, like we've got to, you know, once a week have our, our time of, you know, pretending that the Lord is not alive or pretending that our sins are not forgiven. There's no place for that in the Christian's life. We don't pretend. Even I notice sometimes around Good Friday, you know, people kind of act like Jesus is in the, in the grave again on Friday during the day and evening. He is not. <laughs> There's only one such day on the day that he was crucified, and then the second day, Saturday, and then the third day comes. And after that, ever after that, he is alive. We don't pretend. We don't make a day of uh, you know, a day of atonement out of Good Friday, for example, it is a time of remembering indeed, but it's a time also of gladness as well. And, uh, and certainly, you know, we don't advocate fasting on some kind of artificial weekly basis or regular basis. Um, and this is not to be confused, by the way, with fasting that some people talk about today. Uh, I think they call it intermittent fasting. 
you know, where you're supposed to do that because it what cleanses your colon and it does this and it does that and everything else. That's health. That's diet. That has nothing to do with religious fasting. So don't uh, confuse those. The bigger picture reason for the regime here of no fasting or of no, let me say it this way, no required fasting is that something brand new is happening here in the world of religious faith. This is a brand new situation that is coming. This doesn't happen very often in world history. There's only a very few times when something really true and brand new comes along. Oh, of course, there's all kinds of heresies that come and false religions and all that sort of stuff. That's just the devil. Just ignore him, you know, uh, for the moment. Uh, all that false stuff has no bearing on the true things of God. And <clears throat> what's happening here is like happened when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, when God spoke to Adam and Eve before that, when he spoke to Abraham um, and the patriarchs, when he uh, began to speak to Joseph and Mary and uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, something new is about to happen, major, a major change is coming. And Jesus is now moving the Jewish faith into the next phase of its existence, from law to grace, from the letter to the spirit, from constant sacrifice to completed sacrifice. That is the meaning of the garment and wineskin illustrations. He's saying the garment of Judaism cannot merely be patched. It's a new garment. The old wineskin of Judaism, and I'm going to say real Old Testament Judaism, not what it became you know, after the scribes and Pharisees got done with it, but the real thing, the real Old Testament religion, that, nor their system either, but that wineskin, that old uh, kind of dry, uh, inflexible wineskin could not be packed or poured in with new wine, which was going to ferment and bubble and expand and stretch, and the carbon dioxide in there would stretch the wineskin, and eventually it would just crack that dried up wineskin and burst it, and everything would spill, everything would be ruined. You would have no wine, you'd have no wineskin. So you need new pair of pants, <laughs> new, new garment, you know, so you're not patching it, and you need a new wineskin. That's what the Lord is saying. The new thing cannot be made it up with the old thing, otherwise both will come to ruin and be useless. You put an old patch on an old garment and a new patch on a new garment, a new wine into new wineskins so that they are preserved properly. So what the Lord was doing cannot be patched onto the old garment of Judaism. It's truly the next step. And that's hard for people to understand. I mean, I've even had Jewish people say when I've told them the, the New Testament faith completes and fulfills the Old Testament, they act highly offended at that. Have you ever ran into that before? They are offended that we are saying their faith is incomplete. But if they would read their Old Testament, they would find that it itself says their faith is incomplete. You know, Psalm 110, there's coming a one who is presently sitting at the right hand of the Father who is going to come. 1 Samuel 2.35 says, I'm going to raise up for myself a faithful priest. 
There's going to be a branch of righteousness. There's going to be Gentiles who come to saving faith and who by many large numbers will be gathered together. There's going to be a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You've got to take the next step to complete the religion of the Old Testament. And that next step is in the New Testament. And that's what the Lord is saying. It's a new step now. Okay, It's a new level. It cannot be contained within the old wineskin of Judaism. It's a brand new thing. Things are not done the same way as they were done before. Uh, why is that? Well, in accordance with God's sovereign rule of the affairs of man, he chooses the terms and conditions and the times and the places. For the Jewish nation prior to the first century, the terms and conditions were specified in the law of Moses and by the prophets. And by the way, what did the prophets do? Nothing other than call the people back to the law of Moses. There's nothing new in the prophets, essentially. There's new revelation about prophecy of what's going to happen in the future, but there's nothing new as far as law or whatever. They're calling the people back to that Mosaic covenant faithfulness, back to Deuteronomy 28, the curses and the blessings. That's, that's what the prophets are all doing. Now, after the Lord ordained to send Messiah, uh, the Messiah, he taught them a new and better way, one that, in fact, fulfilled the prophecies of the Jewish scriptures. Now, this notion here creates a major problem for those who want to mix Old Testament faith and New Testament faith. You've heard me speak about the Hebrew Roots Movement. That's one instance of that kind of problem. Of course, there are continuing principles. There are timeless morals. You know, you don't murder. That's applicable all the time. It doesn't matter if we're under the law of Moses or not. But take, for example, the Day of Atonement. Can you really mix the Day of Atonement with Christianity today? What is the Day of Atonement? A day of afflicting your souls. A day of, well, what it's been turned into is a day in which you afflict your soul and that's somehow to be make atonement for your sin. There is no atonement in the day of atonement. There's atonement on the cross of Calvary. And so you can't mix the two. The repeated day of atonement ritual is entirely outmoded by the sacrifice of Christ that was one time and finished. As another example, food laws. Food laws were explicitly set aside by Jesus in Mark 7, 19. Remember he said, that which goes into a man does not defile him, but that which comes out of his heart, that's what defiles him. Why? Because the thing that you eat just goes in and passes through the system. In Acts chapter 10, the Lord from heaven calls down to Peter and says, rise, kill and eat. Peter says, I can't do that. Nothing common or unclean has ever entered. The Lord says three times. Don't argue with me, basically. You are going to now be able to participate in that food, and thus that means you're going to be able to participate with the Gentiles and share table fellowship with them and share the gospel while you're with them so that they can be saved as well. And so the food laws have been set aside. You cannot mix the Old Testament garment with the New Testament garment in that way. There is a, a, a new thing. There's still garments. There's still some continuity there. There's still some you know, prophecies made, prophecies fulfilled, prophecies not yet fulfilled. There, are, there is continuity, but there is a, what the Lord is basically saying is there is a major discontinuity in the systems 
of Old Testament religion and New Testament religion. Discontinuity, but continuous, still, both. Okay, that's what he's doing here in the new era, if you will, or the new age. Jesus bringing a new era of faith. Now, let's talk about one more miracle tonight, and that is found in 918 through 26. It's actually not uh, in that whole section. Um, There is a situation in which a woman has a problem, a health problem, and she is introduced and healed and put uh, to the background space here of just three verses. And it's a very interesting way that it's laid out. So let me read it. Um, and starting in 18, while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him. Notice he goes right away, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. It's interesting. He says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. That was the early part of the chapter here. Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. And then this, the story continues about him going to the ruler's house and, and dealing with this girl who has died. So the event is also reported in Mark and Luke in longer passages here. This passage is only about nine verses. In Mark, it is uh, 22 verses. And in Luke, it is, uh, let's see, 16 verses. So it's in all three of these synoptic gospels. And it sits in the middle, this healing of the woman is in the middle of the account of the ruler's daughter who died. Now, because of that, this is one of my pet peeves now, okay? I'm going to let you in on a little Pastor Matt pet peeve. When you read commentaries on the Gospels, they make much of this because they say, aha, all three Gospels have this arrangement of events. Therefore, they either two of them rely on, a, on the third or they all rely on another mysterious source, Q. Q keeps coming up. You know, I mean, isn't there Q, Q anon or whatever today? I mean, Q is like this odd thing that just pops up. But they call the source Q. And uh, so this literary dependency is supposedly proven by this layout that one gospel or another anonymous source, is the actual original, and the other gospel writers copied from that. The reason this is a pet peeve of mine is that it smacks of some level of unbelief in the text of Scripture, to me. And it matters little, for each gospel is God-breathed as it stands. Is it not? It is God-breathed all scripture, and it's accurate as it is, no matter what sourcing was used and no matter what uh, research was done. 
you know, Luke, for example, I, I basically says, I researched the whole matter carefully from the beginning, and I'm laying out in order what I found. I mean, this is a tremendous book, Luke, and then the book of Acts as well. I mean, we have a first-rate historian here going to town telling us what happened. And so just because he researched it doesn't mean that it's not inspired by God. It is, and he did his human diligence and his homework as well. So this, this whole matter of who's the source of whom, it doesn't really matter to me. The more salient point, and this, I think, often gets overlooked, the very important point, I think, in this arrangement reflects this very simple fact. The events actually occurred in this order. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke write it in this way because that's how it happened. I mean, think of it. Think of your, most, your busiest day at work. And I mean, you're into it. I mean, you've got five things going and, and then number six comes in. And you're going bang, 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 and meetings and this, and you've got to deal with this and that. This is what the Lord Jesus is dealing with. Here you've got something that's, it couldn't, you couldn't have a more important situation come up. You know, brother, somebody has just died. Come. Now. I need you to be there. And Jesus goes with him. But he can't even get to the dead girl's house before somebody else says, Lord, I need help. I mean, he's being mobbed by people, and he can't even do one miracle before he has to do another one. This is how busy the Lord was, and you can see some, you know, how, like, come aside and rest a while, you know. I mean, it's, it's insanity out there, the Lord could say, you know. The, the crowds, the people, the needs, he sees the crowds that, the distressed and dispirited, everything is a disaster because the people do not know the Lord. And there's so many physical needs and very primitive medical provisions for them. And so the arrangement of the events in the Gospels reflect that the events actually occurred in this order. Simple. The simplest explanation is often the best, isn't it? Jesus was attending to a pressing need of a family man, a leader in the nation whose daughter had just died. But Jesus himself was so famous and the demands on him were so great that he could not even walk to a man's house whose daughter died without having to attend to another pressing matter of affliction. The text delicately tells us that the woman had a problem with bleeding, probably menstrual bleeding that would not stop. She had some kind of hemorrhage or ulcer that simply would not heal. Perhaps she had a thyroid problem, cysts, fibroids, a blood disorder, or even the dreaded cancer. It had been troubling her for over a decade, 12 long years. By the way, it's the same as the age of the girl who was raised in the next verses from the dead. For the length of that whole girl's life, this woman had suffered this problem. And it was not only very inconvenient, think of the continual cleaning, the laundry. Not only would it mean physical weakness as her body was continually behind in the production of blood cells and probably low on iron so she was anemic all the time, 
perhaps constantly needing significant hydration, but also she was ceremonially unclean 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days for 12 long years. Everything she sat on became unclean. People who touched that would become unclean. She became basically a pariah in her own existence. The normal ceremonial uncleanness for a woman lasted seven days, but this unclean state was every single day for 12 years plus seven days beyond the cessation whenever that came for her. Things she touched would be unclean, the inconvenience, she could not worship at the temple. People who wanted to do so could not sit in her chair or her other things. She was effectively sentenced to be an outcast. There was, under the law of Moses, something impure about the imperfection of unusual bodily secretions that prevented a person from being in the fully clean status who had those secretions. The other passages tell us some relevant facts. She had suffered tremendously at the hands of physicians. Can you imagine? Do you know how frustrating it is today to go to a doctor and not get help and have to go get a second or third opinion and finally find out what the real problem is? And then you're like, I'm never going back to that original doctor because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Imagine the frustration of doing that for 12 years. And, 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 and she had spent huge sums of money trying to be healed. And imagine the embarrassment of that and all of that trying to get healed. She was never made better. In fact, she had become worse, the text of Scripture tells us. We also, we also learn the woman touched Jesus as part of a crowd pressing around him, and the woman was initially hiding from the Lord. Can you imagine how embarrassed she must have been? But she just had this faith that said, if I can just touch, then I will be made well. The Lord was kind to her, wasn't he? Um, she feared the Lord, and she came and she told him the truth once he began to search for her. She had enough faith in what she had heard and seen that she knew that if she just touched his garment, she could be healed. And it tells us in this text that she was made well from that very hour. The other texts, other gospel texts say that she immediately could feel that the flow of blood was dried up inside of her. She suddenly felt different. Instantaneously, like the paralytic in, in the early part of the chapter, no surgery, no medication, no nasty side effects, no, uh, you know, Weight restrictions, you know, you can't lift over 10 pounds for the next six months, or whatever. Just healing. The Lord said to her, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. What a relief to her. And the Lord did all this, as you can imagine, with some big thing looming over his mind. There's a dead girl that's awaiting my arrival at a home in just a few minutes. And he healed this woman just like that. What power, what grace, what mercy. Your faith essentially has saved you. Praise God for the work of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in awe of this 
three-verse segment of Scripture which tells us of the great miracle of the healing of a poor woman. Lord, we thank you that this is in the Scriptures, that it reminds us that it is our faith that will make us well, not physically well today in every case, but certainly spiritually well. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us to trust and believe the Scriptures, not to doubt. Oh, because we see a certain arrangement and we think we're literally uh, very clever that we can come up with some idea of the origin of this text. The fact of the matter is, Lord, we confess that the origin of the text is in the origin of the actual events that occurred. And we thank you for recording those events for us in the order that they evidently occurred so that we could see the busy ministry of the Lord and how he was in such a way ministering to people all the time. May we also minister to people, even when it seems inconvenient or needs are pressing upon us. Help us to be cognizant of the ministry that needs to be done. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.